We'll turn to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. We'll serve as a springboard for our study tonight. We began last week looking at the doctrine of the scripture of meditation, of biblical meditation. And I want us tonight to consider what meditation is and what it is not. There are some, there's some confusion about that with teaching today. But we see here in the scriptures in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, when the Lord gave Joshua that great command to go in and possess the land, to lead God's people into finally, after all these years of wandering into that possession that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we heard prayed tonight, and to Moses, his predecessor. What a job Joshua has for him, leading that group of people. And that uh, not, a, not an easy task any way that you look at it. Walled cities, fierce people, inhabitants of the land in Canaan. How would you attack a job like that? What, how would you equip yourself for such a task? Well, the Lord tells him in cha- chapter 1 and verse 7, Be thou strong and courageous. Well, how are you going to be strong? What a command. God says to be something, if God tells us to do something, then he gives us the wherewithal and the resources to be strong and courageous. He's not going to trust in his own strength. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. What resources did the children of Israel have? They've been a, a nomadic, wandering people for 40 years. They had no artillery. They had no standing army. Here they were to come in and possess property and cities, of fierce people, huge cities, walled cities. We know the first city was so thick that you could build houses in it. Rahab the harlot lived in the city wall. What a massive city the walls of Jericho were. Be thou strong and courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate. There's our word. One of the two Hebrew words that describes meditation. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. When? When will you be prosperous? When will you have spiritual success? When will you be strong and courageous to do exploits for God? When you meditate therein in the law of God day and night. When you bring up the topic of meditation today, for many people, even Christian people, usually think of yoga or transcendental meditation or some Eastern religion's practice. This is not what the Bible has in reference to at all. When it speaks of the blessed man of Psalm 1 and the verse we just read in Joshua, the blessed man who the Bible describes as who delights, thrills in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Do you see that repetition here to the blessed man in Psalm 1 and to the command of Joshua, not just here or there, day and night, a fixed time, uh, steady times throughout the day. And he says, are the Lord's words there to Joshua that this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Many believers act as if even though the Bible mentions meditation and teaches it, that it is some optional thing. That that might be for some people as if that it is not something that God has in mind for all of us, all of his people, that you could take it or leave it. Willemus 
Brakel wrote, As the heart is, so will be the thoughts. An unconverted person, a natural person, will have reflections, but these are consistent with his nature. Everyone meditates on something, and whether it is right or wrong or neutral. And so the question is, would be, what are we filling our minds with? Some meditate on the truth of God's word. Meditation, though, is not just practiced by some. We all practice it, whether we realize it or not or would call it that. The Puritan Thomas Watson explained the farmer meditates on his acres of land. The physician meditates upon his remedies. The lawyer meditates upon the common law. The tradesman is, for the most part, meditating upon his wares. The bottom line is we we think about things. We spend uh, idle time or uh, hours meditating, thinking, pondering, imagining things. There is, as we've seen here, a worldly meditation, and there is biblical meditation where the things of God are considered deeply and often and pondered and displayed in the heart and mind. There's a worldly meditation, and there's a meditation that honors Christ. What is the difference? What is the elements that would uh, constitute biblical or spiritual meditation? Uh, Edmund Calamy preached, there is a meditation that is sinful and wicked, and that is when we meditate upon the things that are wicked. There is a meditation that is holy and godly, and that is when we meditate upon the things that are holy and heavenly. Nathaniel Renew said that meditation was any serious or earnest thinking of any matter whatsoever, ever, whether it be good or evil. What a person habitually chooses to meditate on reveals their true spiritual condition. As Henry Scudder said, for according to a person's meditation, such is he. And again, Watson agreed that meditation manifests what a man really is. As Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, verse 7, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our Lord referred to that when he spoke in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, nor can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. By their fruits you shall know them. And quoting Edward, Edmund Calamy again regarding sinful meditation, Let us mourn before the Lord that we have misplaced our meditation. For the heart of man is restless. It is like the weight of a clock that will never leave going down as long as it is wound up. The heart of a man will always be in meditation of something or the other. Now mourn before God heartily and go into your closets and bemoan it that you have ground chaff to your immortal souls all your lives long. You have been meditating all your lives long upon vain things and have not meditated upon the things of eternity. So true biblical meditation will have the Bible as its foundation. This will be the source of what we picture and imagine and think about in our hearts and minds as opposed to false or unhealthy meditation dwelling on the writings, the philosophies, or the sinful things of man. The Word of God is the sole source, the sole foundation of genuine spiritual meditation. And that is the difference between spiritual and worldly meditation, what it is we're thinking about, what it is we're filling our hearts and minds with. The psalmist declared in Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. The watchword of the reformers and of our godly forefathers is sola scriptura, 
It's this Bible alone, the Bible above all things. The Bible alone is our, for our rule and practice. God has revealed, as he told Joshua, this book of the law. This is what you need to know as you go in and possess the land. Some might say he needed to study military manuals, but he's doing God's business, and God's work must be done God's way. And as we're living for the Lord, our Christian life is to be lived God's way. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are they? But they're spiritual. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And that's why we're to uh, capture every thought and bring it into the obedience of Christ and cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. We know, as Jeremiah 17, 9 declares, that the heart... The inner man, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What is it that will counteract that? Our tendency as fallen creatures is to deceive ourselves about ourselves first and foremost. We will put ourselves in a better light or or fancy ourselves something that we're not as we see the Pharisee praying in the temple while the publican was shown by the the Spirit what his condition was. But the Pharisee pictured himself as something far different than what he really was. William Bridge aptly counseled, If you would carry on the work of meditation in a way as it may be done with sweetness, be sure that it is bounded with Scripture, and let nothing fall within the compass of your meditation but what falls within the compass of Scripture. Beware of those who push for existential encounter with God or some encounter with the the Lord apart from Scripture. They're on very dangerous ground here. There is even some mystical, existential teaching among professed Christians. But anything apart from its core, its uh, focus upon the revealed Word of God, will lead to error. God Himself has ordained the spiritual tools of this holy, infallible Word and prayer as the means for spiritual communion with Him. For example, the the contemplative prayer movement tries to experience God's voice apart from his written word. And this is a departure from the absolute conviction in the sufficiency of scriptures. If you're to seek the Lord, you'll find him in his word. His word reveals to us who he is and what he is like, what his attributes are. Our Lord said that all men needs to sustain his spiritual life is the word of God. Did he not say that? Man shall not live by bread alone. Food is what the natural body needs, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is what the inner man needs. Not some of it, not part of it, but every word that God has come from the mouth of God. In all his great temptation in the wilderness when Satan came against him, he repeatedly used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And what did he do? It is written. It is written. It is written. Our Lord had memorized the scriptures that he quoted. And uh, that's part of meditation. It's not just memorization, but when we think about the Word of God and, and, and have it written upon our hearts and minds, what a f- source it is in time of temptation. I was thinking today, as I was thinking about this thing of meditation, when I interviewed Dr. Uh, uh, David Miller about memorization, and he talked about how he memorized the scripture. And over and over again, he would go over the scripture. No wonder he's such a powerful preacher. No wonder his life is so filled with God's word. It's upon his heart and mind. It's it's so readily there. 
And that this is work. It takes effort. It's a task to do it. Oh, but what a rich reservoir that he has. The word of God alone is sufficient to meet all the need of the soul of man, the inner man. The psalmist, as we mentioned, said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, we've heard in Psalm 1, in Joshua 1, meditate day and night. But here the psalmist says, all the day. As he goes about his work, his business, he's thinking about the doctrines of God's word, the promises of God, the nature of God, what heaven will be like, the great purchase of of salvation at Calvary for us. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, he, he declares. Thomas Manton said, Do not try to pry further than God hath revealed. Your thoughts must be bounded by his word. There is no duty that a fanatic brain is apt to abuse more than meditation. Do not leave bread and wine and gnaw upon a stone. What an apt picture that is. We have God's Word. In David Saxon's book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind, where he discusses the art or the the practice of biblical meditation, he mentions that in the late 1960s that the popular British rock group, the iconic group now, the Beatles, began making trips to India. And there they eventually accepted a Hebrew, uh, a Hindu uh, named Maharisha Mahesh, Yogi, as their spiritual uh, guru. And he was the founder and the leader of the Transcendental Meditation Movement, or better known as TM. Unfortunately, when the Beatles became spiritually interested, this movement was widely accepted by a generation of eager followers. Transcendental meditation is still widely used today as a relaxation technique that allows your mind to settle inward beyond thought to experience the source of thought. Pure awareness, also known as transcendental consciousness, they write. This includes a practiced passivity of thinking and emptying the mind of itself. Likewise, the popular practice of yoga meditation deals systematically with all levels of our being, including building a solid foundation in our relationships with the world and other people, as well as training the senses, body, mind, and breath and mind, they write. Aspects of Far Eastern religious practices, such as yoga and transcendental meditation, have become extremely popular and even commonplace and very faddish in the West today. According to a 2008 research in the Yoga Journal, roughly 6.8 to 15.8 million Americans practice yoga with many more interested uh, in beginning it in the future. And then he he writes in this book, why have these pseudo-meditation practices become so acceptable? And you notice the word pseudo-meditation or a false meditation, opposite of what the scripture teaches. It is because many today finally recognize that people are more than just material beings. Thus, it is necessary to deal with the immaterial part of man for true wholeness. But rather than turn to God's truth to understand how to heal our immaterial being, sinners seek to hide from God by looking for some way to find inner peace and tranquility apart from the healing graces of Christ. In reality, transcendental meditation substitute spiritual techniques for Christian truth. Edmund Clowney pointed out that transcendental meditation has won its way into America as a non-religious technique. Thousands of people who would shrink from the practice of Christian prayer are suddenly ready to set aside 20 minutes 
twice a day for meditation that is supposed to be non-devotional. They seem to feel that as long as, at long last, even prayer has been packaged in secular form for modern man. Although each claims to be non-religious, yoga and transcendental open the mind to spiritual predators by creating a kind of mental vacuum, something the scripture never tells us to have just a mental vacuum in our heart and mind. We're to think on these things, pointed to the things that we're to meditate upon. Transcendental meditation claims to help people find self-actualization. However, it actually ends in people making their own reasoning and absolute truth in their personal God. Like the time of the judges, non-biblical forms of meditation allow every man to do that which is right in his own eyes. There's a great contrast here, though when we see the, the revelation of biblical meditation, it doesn't tell us to empty our thoughts. Rather, it tells us to fill our thoughts with Scripture, with uh, fastening them to the truths of God's Word, His declarations, His, uh, the claims of Christ, the, the great aspects of our God's attributes. And rather than trying to arrive at a plane of self-actualization, when you look deep into that dark heart of yours, you won't find uh, beautiful things. But when you look to the Lord you'll find grace and peace and those things that he promises. Biblical meditation seeks to think God's thoughts after him. It seeks to grow in appreciation that all of life is lived before a great and mighty God. Biblical meditation realizes that thoughts reveal beliefs. And whether we wish to admit it or not, our thoughts define our religion. Willemus Abrakel beautifully explained this in this, uh, the nature of biblical meditation Spiritual meditation is a religious exercise. It neither consists in idleness, nor is it passive, in which we are but recipients permitting ourselves to be illumined about the divine perfections and divine mysteries. Instead, it is an activity in which the soul is occupied in reflecting upon these matters, approving of them, delighting in them, is astonished about them, and quickened by them. Our minds, by nature, are depraved. The Bible tells us this. We're fallen in our minds. Our minds are darkened, the Scripture tells us. They're dead spiritually. First Corinthians 2 tells us that the natural man cannot perceive or understand these things apart from a divine illumination. David said in Psalm 36, verse 4 of the sinner, He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Often when we are offended or wronged or the tendency is to muse and devise and to ponder and to think of ways to get even or uh, to withhold affection or to allow bitterness to take over. And that's the opposite of what meditation would have us would have the result of being. God sees that and judges our sinful thoughts and our designs and our intentions. Proverbs 12 verse 2 says, a man of wicked devices or or one who devises or thinks up evil, will God condemn? For most of us, and in truth, I trust all of us, transcendental meditation is not something we would get involved in. Although we hear movie stars and the rich and famous and people who reject, for the most part, biblical revelation, and so they seek something else to put in its place. And that's what the, the quote from David Saxon's book tells us. But what else do they have? What else does a lost person have? 
those who don't know the Lord and who've rejected his word don't have these resources. The mighty, powerful, alive word of God. The Bible says it is alive. It's unlike any other book. It can pierce the thoughts and the intents of the heart and do surgery on the soul, the, the sinew and the bone of the inner man that cannot be seen, that cannot be detected, but the Word of God can. And it can hit the raw nerve of human need and motive. Only the Word of God can do that. Those without these resources aren't, aren't aware or don't avail themselves to the spiritual resources of meditation in the Word of God and, and its accompanying grace or or. Uh, duty or discipline of prayer but we're tempted to fill our minds with useless and unimportant things in fact there's so much that clamors for it we have to sift through all of that we catch ourselves even those who try to have disciplined minds there's so much that clamors for our attention and much of it is empty or useless it, it serves no no lasting or spiritual growth whatsoever frivolous things and of course satan uses all of his influence to divert our attention away from soul work, the work of the soul. Have you thought about that? Well, the Bible says much about it. Exercise thyself unto godliness. What does that mean? It's the same word for working out in a gymnasium. And yet most Christians never exercise or really work hard at becoming a better Christian or becoming more spiritual or seeking the Lord or working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They take the easy road like those who are lost. And don't take up these spiritual disciplines that the Bible tells us is the whole secret behind, behind spiritual success and prosperity. Some, we wonder why we don't see that the fertile uh, results and fruit in our spiritual lives. Here's one of the keys of why it's not. Prayerlessness and lack of meditation in the, in the Word of God. No wonder we have so little peace or steadfastness. Isaiah 26 verse 3 speaks of this. We see these verses and we almost brush over them and forget I don't see what they're teaching. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Who? Who will be kept in perfect peace? Whose mind will be kept in the, in, in the peace of God? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Another way of describing one who's fixed on the Lord and meditates upon him because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. There are two basic words in the Hebrew for the word meditation uh, that are translated meditate in the Old Testament scriptures. The first is Haggah, and it's the one is translated that way in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, and the verse that we looked at there in, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That's the Hebrew word Hagar. It can be translated, interestingly, to moan, to growl, to roar, to utter, to muse, mutter, meditate, plot, devise, speak, or imagine. And when you put all of it together, the picture is an inter internal brooding and pouring over something in the heart. And there may be even sounds of moaning and saying, ah, or yes, or maybe even unintelligible uh, words as we think about those things and expressions. When you smell something good, what do you do? Mmm, don't you? When you think about something wonderful, there are indescribable or words that can't even express what you're feeling. Sheer delight. 
in the theological word book of the Old Testament, we read the basic meaning of Haggai and its cognates is a a low sound characteristic of the moaning of a dove or of the growling of a lion over its prey. Often the term refers to the plots originating in the hearts of the wicked men or nations which are then given expression in lying and deceitful words. But another and positive use relates to meditating upon the word of God, which like the plots of the wicked goes on day and night. Now the wicked are are ceaseless, aren't they? The wicked never cease from their wickedness. They never tire from thinking of new ways. To, to devise sin as our Lord when he looked down at the day of Noah that the thoughts and the intents of the heart were only evil continually there's an evil meditation there's a sinful meditation but the opposite should be true for the child of God as we've mentioned Psalm 1 verse 2 speaks of this meditating as delight thrilling in reveling in delighting in taking pleasure in God's word. Now let me ask you tonight, and I, I wouldn't ask for you to raise your hand or whatever. I ask myself, do we really have that kind of relationship with God's word where it absolutely thrills us? We revel in it. God's word is clear. Whatever we revel in, whatever we delight in, distinguishes between the godly and the unspiritual. Thomas Watson said, He who delights in God's law is often thinking on it. What a man delights in, his thoughts are running upon. He who delights in money finds his mind taken up with it. Therefore, the covetous man is said to mind earthly things in Philippians 3.19. Thus, if there is a delight in the things of God, the, the mind will be musing upon them. Well, the second Hebrew word that's translated meditate is the word siak, and it's used in, for example, in Psalm 119 and verse 97. Oh, as we've mentioned, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Again, here we see that meditation is linked to what to what one loves in their heart and mind. This Hebrew word depicts one lovingly rehearsing, going over and over again in one's mind, But in contrast to the other Hebrew word, Hagar, that we looked at, siak can be either spoken out loud or said silently in one's heart. And so it can be translated talk or speak or declare or ponder or pray. David explains in Psalm 119, verse 148, Mine eyes anticipate or look forward to the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. So we get a snapshot into why David was called, in spite of all of his faults and failures. What does the Holy Spirit tell us about David? He was a man after God's own heart. Well, no wonder. Why was that? Was it because he was just happened to be a favorite? No, I think this, this testimony of David gives us insight to why he was considered that. I can't wait until the night watches where there are long expanses of uninterrupted time when the sheep, as a shepherd, were lying and resting in the pasture. He put them where they should be. And then the shepherd was guarding his sheep long periods of time to watch guard over them. What would he do? Well, he certainly didn't have an iPad, did he? He wasn't on Facebook. He wasn't doing a crossword puzzle. 
or many other things that we could list, what was David doing as he was watching and waiting for his sheep and guarding them, looking for marauding animals? He was, the Bible says, I anticipate the night watches that I might meditate in what? Just mindless emptying his mind? No, meditating, you see the object, in thy word. He was looking toward, forward to an unhurried stretch of time when he could meditate, think about, and ponder. I just wonder, do we pencil in time? Do we have sections of time in our day where we set aside for meditating in the word that we've read, the message that we've heard, the, the sermon that's been preached and prayed over and studied over? Do we just toss it aside and can hardly remember what was preached? Or do we go home and set aside a period of time and say, Lord, that was the portion that you had for me, our pastor brought to us. And he poured over it and prayed over it and studied and dug long in the mine of, of, of your treasures. I ought to take those diamonds and jewels out and look at them. I ought to look up that verse or two and go back over the text and find out what is there for me. It's, it's a careful pondering and chewing over matters of the soul. And I'm sure you've heard described a cow chewing over the cud. They, they regurgitate it, chew it again, think about it again. And in a sense, meditation is that way. It's a bringing it back, thinking about it again, getting all the juices, the things out of the what was taught, the meat of God's Word. And so meditation then is pictured in the Old Testament as a spiritual activity of the heart in the mind, the inner man, uh, that epitomizes or characterizes a godly child of God. Now, there are those who take no time for this whatsoever. They are surface believers. They very rarely show the deeper graces of God's Word, and there's a reason for it. Why was Joshua strong and courageous and ready to do exploits? Why did he take God at his word and saw the miraculous walls of Jericho falling down? Because he took the Lord at his word and meditated in his word day and night. In the New Testament, you say, well, Brother Lamb, that's good and fine. I see those two Old Testament words. I don't see the word meditation in the New Testament. And in many translations, the word is not translated meditate as we see it in the Old Testament. But it's there over and over again. And I want us to look at just a few of those as we close our study tonight. In the New Testament, we see one of the classic portions of Scripture is the one we often refer to is that, that litmus test, that guideline for what we should read and see and think about. And is often we give in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. When I taught English in, in our high school here, we would always use this verse as the standard for literature. In fact, it is the basis for the philosophy of, of literature for the believer. And it covers the basis of what is acceptable. What should a Christian avail themselves of? Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure and lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue or, or praise. And here's our word. Think on these things. Here the word think. It comes from the Greek word Logismai, which means a careful logic. We get another English word from it, logic. But it's a careful uh, thought to a matter or to think about, to consider, to ponder, or let one mind's 
one's mind dwell on. So you see, it's very parallels with the Old Testament Hebrew words, that word think. Ponder, think deeply, go over, pour over it. Peter O'Brien wrote, the apostle is calling upon his readers to let their thoughts continually dwell on all those positive and wholesome qualities which he's just mentioned. Where do we find those things? In the scriptures, in the truth of God's word, in the character of our Lord Jesus Christ as he lived out his life on this earth. Another word like that one, like the word to meditating, is the word account. And you'll see that word account in the New Testament or accounting. The writer of Hebrews exhorted the Lord's people to consider the spiritual truths in order to persevere in the face of the persecution and the trials that they're going through. And this is one of the things that will fortify us through persecution and spiritual trials, which are going to come to every one of us. There's not a one who's not going to go through dark times and deep waters if you live long enough in this life. Physical things, emotional things, financial problems, work problems, family problems. What is the, what is the thing that will distinguish and help buoy us during those times? Well... He tells them in Hebrews 11, verse 19, that Abraham was accounting that God was able to raise Isaac up. Remember that test where Abraham had to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Why was Abraham able to do that? Can you imagine such a test? Could it, none of us could imagine a test where we were to, to offer our child and especially through whom all the else that God had promised would have to be fulfilled in that child. And so it, it just seems unbelievable. And yet Abraham was able to do it. How? He accounted. He considered. He knew. He pondered. He thought about, well, if God is commanding me to do this, and if he's going to make me go through with this, he will have to then raise up Isaac from the dead because all the promises of God centered on Isaac. You see how he meditated upon that? And that truth became a part of his being. It influenced his actions and his philosophy and helped him to live through that most difficult time in his life, considering, accounting, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And so we know something else. Abraham knew the doctrine of resurrection, didn't he? Of course he did. Galatians 3 tells us that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And so he took it to heart. It was not just something that might be uh, right, even though Christ had not lived and died. He knew he was coming. And if the Messiah was going to come, how would he come? He would come through the promised seed that God gave to Abraham. Oh, we see, we often focus on Abraham's offering Isaac as a parent, as the emotion of how could you give your child? But there was so much more there than just that. Abraham was put to the test. And he considered deeply, he accounted that what God had taught him was not just uh, theory, it was not just theological teaching, this was the very truth of the Word of God. How else could he lift that knife in readiness to take his son's life? He was accounting that God was able to raise up Isaac from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Hebrews 12 verse 3 commands believers to consider the sufferings of Christ. We're to meditate on the sufferings of Christ, to think about them, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You think you've had a bad day. You haven't been through Gethsemane today. 
You haven't had someone sell you into bondage. You haven't had one of the dearest ones on you for 30 pieces of silver to sell you over to, to the enemy. You haven't had your beard plucked out and your body beaten and your visage so marred that someone couldn't tell that you were a human being. Consider the sufferings of Christ. Not in some way that would just focus on the pain and the agony, but what his great love did for us, what it purchased for us, how it equips us to go through what we're going through, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. There's a great temptation for God's children to be wearied and to faint in their minds. What is the remedy for it? Meditating on the work of Christ, thinking upon Calvary. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25, explains that in a local church, Part of the reason that we're to to faithfully gather together is to consider one another and to provoke them unto love and good words. Good works, that word consider. Consider one another. It means that careful thought should be given about the responsibility, the spiritual responsibility to encourage one another and to build one another up in the faith. I ask you tonight, who have you encouraged today? What brother or sister will be encouraged by your presence at this prayer meeting tonight? Some people come and leave. They skirt around the edges. They barely speak to anyone, and they're gone. They've not encouraged anyone. We're thankful that they came to the prayer meeting or the church service, but part of the reason you've come is not just to receive information or to check it off some list, but to exhort, to edify, to encourage. Brother, I've been praying for you. How is your? What can I pray for you about? There are all kinds of ways. Just greeting one another and extending our love and affection is a great way of encouraging. These uses of consider come from the same word, which means to direct one's whole mind to an object. Also, from a higher standpoint, to immerse oneself in it and to apprehend it as into its, in its whole compass. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, we see godly Mary. What was she doing? Remember when the, the angel came to her and told her all that was going to to transpire in her life. The Bible tells us that Mary kept all these things in her heart, and here's our word, same word, pondered them in her heart. What was it that allowed Mary to go through so graciously and with the peace of God that passes the understanding in the light of Joseph's potential rejection of her? You know, her parents could not have understood what was going on. No one could have understood what was going on in in Mary's life. But the angel came to her and told her, and she pondered these things in her heart. This is a habit of truly spiritually-minded believers. Pondered, and the Greek means to think about seriously, to reflect or debate back and forth all the ramifications, all the promises, what it will be like, how God will bring it to pass. It involves trust and delight and an appreciation that you can you imagine what Mary thought? Well, Lord, you, out of all the people on earth, you've chosen me, just me. But do you know your salvation ought to cause you to ponder like that? Lord, why did you choose me? There's so many who don't know. We heard our brother read about the, a, a language where just 2% of the people know the language, just a handful of people, and probably we're sure that they don't have the scripture in their language. And here you have so much that you're available to, for your spiritual growth and to meditate upon. Oh, how blessed we are. We ought to ponder upon that. Colossians 3, verse 2, Paul exhorts the believers in Colossae to set your affection 
on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? Well, we know the obvious answer to that. They're short-lived, aren't they? They're fleeting. They're going down the drain. This whole world is falling apart. Everything that can be touched or felt will go up in the, the fiery furnace one day. But heavenly things, moths can't eat it up. Thieves can't steal it. There's not a thing you can get away from thieves this day and time. With all the cyber stuff, there's nowhere that can be stolen in any manner of ways. We used to think of thieves just breaking in or robbing a bank. Now they can do it electronically. But I'll tell you one thing. Whatever is laid up in heaven is kept secure. Think about your inheritance. Think about it that will not rust or be taken away. Your salvation, which no man can pluck you out of God's hand. That's something to think about, isn't it? Set your affection is the Greek word phroneo, and it means to keep on giving serious consideration to something, to ponder, to let your mind dwell on it, to fix your attention to. Revelation 2, verse 5, we're told to remember. That simple word remember is another derivation of the word meditate. Remember, another word for meditation. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Look where you were. Are you growing in grace or have you fallen backwards? Remember, think about it. How did you get there? To someone I may be speaking to tonight, you may be in a backslidden condition. Where did you fall from? Where were you? What caused the fall? Why are you outside of fellowship with the Lord and his people? What were the things that brought you to that place? What area of the scripture did you disobey? Where to think about those things? Consider them. Uh, ponder them. And then repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, unless thou repent. Remember, meditation will bring about repentance, will show us our spiritual standing. There's some who should examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. That word examine is to scrutinize, go over with a fine-tooth comb. Look and can compare your profession or your experience by what the Word of God says. Remember, it's from a Greek word, namaneo, uh, to recall information from memory. It doesn't mean that you've forgotten something. It's not in that way. Rather, it commands the believer to recall and bring it up and think about it again. Hebrews thirteen seven says, remember those that have the rule over you. Recall it. Think about it. Ponder those that the Lord has put in your lives. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Paul said to Timothy, remember... What? That Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That's something to think about, isn't it? That Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, raised from the dead. Meditation is given in the New Testament as the way, the key way for the godly person to renew their mind. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How is that to be, that metamorphosis in the Greek there? Transform, change into what we are into something else. What is the key? What is the tool that will cause that metamorphosis? Meditation upon God's word. It is also used as a primary means to, to comfort and encourage uh, Christian perseverance. Consider, again, the, the, the James Usher, the, his counsel, he said, consider, set apart some time for meditation that the word may be engrafted into thy heart. If the meat that thou eatest uh, be not digested, it will do thee no good. If you see the necessity of labor to retain the word, to digest it, to make it your own, 
that you may be transformed by it. And as a man's meat is turned into his substance, so the word of God being digested will nourish you. Well, these are great things to think about. May the Lord give us grace to apply ourselves in this area of meditation.